Domestic abuse, school shootings, mass killings, ethno-political conflict, genocide, terrorism and war. Peace psychology is the study of the mental processes that lead to conflict and how that knowledge can be used in a positive way. In this series, Peace in Mind, we'll be exploring the breadth of peace and conflict psychology. So conflict and peace are, yeah, definitely not to be associated with badness and goodness, evil and good. <laughs> I'm Kim Stewart. And I'm Linda Rose. We're your hosts for this series. Peace in Mind is produced in the studios of 4EB Brisbane with the help of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Psychologists for Peace, an interest group of the Australian Psychological Society. On the 10th of August, 1976, one of my youngest sisters, Anne, went walking with four of her children. And there was a clash between an active service unit of the Irish Republican Army and the British Army. And the British Army shot the IRA man driving a car through the head, and his car went up onto a footpath, and it pinned my sister Anne and three of her four children against school railings. And all the children were killed and Andrew was only six weeks old, John was two and a half, and Joanne was only eight. And the young IRA man, Danny Lennon, was also dead, so my sister was dangerously ill at that time and not expected to live. So um, uh, uh, some of us got together and we said, this has got to stop. We've got to solve our problems another way because violence doesn't work. Because of like, you know, because of distribution of labor, women have to search for food, you know, like, you know, and, and it's a daily duty. And there's a conflict happen. There's like, you know, resources are scarce and women have to struggle with that. Gender-based violence, such as rape, as, you know, like, as we know, in the case of Burma, there was a, like, you know, experience of gun rape, like every, country in the world where has experienced war. So that's also happened. And, and yet, in Burma, women involved in informal peace process, but never be in formal peace process. So women know what is it like to be, live in war zone. What is their experience? Women experience in war zone must be hot and must be like, you know, learn, must learn from this experience. and they can apply into peace process and peace negotiation. You have just been listening to Kin Marquis, an Australian Burmese activist and filmmaker. Before that, May Reed Corrigan Maguire, Irish activist and founder of Irish group Peace People. In the year 2000, the United Nations adopted Security Council Resolution 1325, recognizing for the first time that women's experiences in war and peace building are usually not considered. And too often, violence against women and girls in wartime is treated with impunity. In 2012, the Australian government finally recognized this fact with the Australian National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security. Women are the backbone of the peace movement, with many women's organizations highlighting the contribution they make to peacekeeping and the effects of war on women. On International Women's Day, Kim spoke to Dr. Nicole George, 
from the University of Queensland's Department of Political Science about women, war and peacemaking. Nicole has studied women's peace activism in the Pacific. Women are vital to peace building. I, I absolutely believe that. But we don't want to essentialize that idea either. We don't want to sort of um, begin by expecting all women to be peace builders. We also don't want to begin by expecting that all women who are interested in peace are interested in the same thing when they talk about peace. You know, people, a lot of my work has involved actually looking at peace building activity across time and, and gender advocacy across time, particularly in the, the region which I, where I work, which is the Pacific Islands. And what's very interesting is to sort of map out what activists in different periods of history have understood um, peace to mean. You know, what do they mean when they're talking about peace? And often they're talking about very different things. You know, back in the 60s and 70s, peace activists were talking about peace and they were in the Pacific region and they were talking about nuclear disarmament. They were talking about the end of colonization and they were talking about indigenous autonomy and economic sovereignty from the Pacific Islands. That's what they meant by peace. Today, because the political climate's changed and, and, and the challenges have become much more localized and you know, peace activists today in the Pacific Islands are dealing with really localized outbreaks of conflict and those they might, those localised outbreaks of conflict might actually in part be, co be caused by those broader international influences, but because they're very urgent and violent at the local level, the focus becomes very much on the local. So when women to are talking about peace in the Pacific Islands today, I think they're much more talking about things like a secure environment to bring up their families, um, a secure environment to give birth. <laughs> You know, I'm thinking there about the situation of women in Bougainville who were, you know, forced to flee their homes, had no access to healthcare and were living a, a bush existence during the, the conflict in the 1990s in Bougainville and giving birth in the bush and trying to raise kids in the bush and actually being incredibly creative and, you know, going back to old cultural practices to try and sustain a livelihood. So you know, in adversity, doing quite amazing things to survive. Those kind of issues are at the forefront, I think, of women's minds when they talk about peace. It's like, what future are we creating as, as mothers, but not only as mothers, as, you know, as daughters, are we prepared to see our men involved in this conflict? As mothers, are we prepared to see our children dying in this conflict? As as um, sisters, are we prepared to see our brothers dying in conflict? You know, not denying that women are also, you know, the perpetrators of conflict too, but very often it's quite a masculine endeavour. And I think women's concerns about peace are really motivated by very fundamental questions about security. And we also know that in many conflict settings, you know, the, the prevalence of gender violence really spikes. So it's as if masculine displays of, of, of public aggression authorise then the same kind of aggression in the private domain, the mm -hmm. same kind of masculine violence in the private domain. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, that's one of the side effects of long running wars, isn't it? That men exactly. can't get out of that That, that kind mindset. of mindset. That's yeah. right. It's legitimate to take what you want when you want it, to have what you want when you want it. And it's legitimate for you to, to um, 
for people to you sort of respect your masculine power you know your, your conduct is sort of authorized in that way in a conflict setting and so we know there's good statistical evidence to show that that kind of pu those public displays of of aggression are then replicated in the private domain so women become the victims of of you know increasing rates of of gendered forms of violence in those yeah. situations so again, you know, that gets back to this question about, you know, security, women's security and what, what they expect, the type of environment they want. And I think that motivates them in really powerful ways to actually stand up and maybe even to, to be involved in activity that culturally is not normally what's expected of women. But I think it gets to the point that they just really can't stand it anymore and they, you know, and they, they're because of their, you know, all those reproductive resp responsibilities that women are expected to shoulder, that motivates them. It's, it's normal for you to want more for your children. And there's a real, you know, there's a long academic tradition of working in that, um, of, of using those ideas and looking at those ideas and how they inform women's peace advocacy. Other, other feminists reject those ideas though because they say it's very essentializing. Where does it leave women who are not mothers or have no interest in mothering or who have no maternal instinct? You know, if it, it's not as if every woman feels those things the same way. But, um, you know, I, I, I do think it's an interesting lens. You know, I think motherhood uh, is politically strategic for women peacemakers to invoke. So while it may be essentializing at one level. I also know from my own work in the Pacific Islands that women activists very often when they want to be heard by politi political elites, masculine political elites, they will stand up and say, as women and mothers, we can no longer accept this. And because of, you know, the cultural protocols around motherhood in the Pacific Islands, you know, many people argue that the Pacific Islands' is, cultures are very patriarchal and very restrictive for women. Nicole stresses this is not true and says, in many parts of the Pacific, women have been active peace builders. It's just that, as is often the case, their efforts are not widely recognised. It's very common to talk about the region as an arc of instability, meaning, you know, looking and what happens is observers of the region and learned academic colleagues in the, you know, who work on the region will talk about um, the pervasiveness of conflict in the region and they'll look at cases from Bougainville all the way through to Fiji and up into Micronesia and say these societies are inherently unstable and you know what are the dynamics that are driving conflict but often that's a debate really about what men do right and so a lot of my work has really aimed to show that we can turn that idea of the arc of instability on its head if we look at what women do, you know, and actually not only their activism around peace, but the, the runs that they've got on the board as peace builders, you know, they've achieved some really significant stuff working in local contexts and working collaboratively across the region. You know, peace advocacy in Fiji, where the regime is, is, is very nervous about kind of public displays that could be seen to be critical of what it's doing. Um, it's, a, it's a harder prospect to maintain. And I think, you know, in, that ca in this kind of instance, what's going on, peace building is still occurring, but it's, it's sort of trying to occur under the radar. So the big public events aren't so visible. 
but there is a, still a lot of activity going on that's more behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And peace activists themselves, you know, I've, I've, I've noticed over time, and I talk about this in my book, um, many of them talk about the importance of engaging with the military. You know, they say peace activism isn't only about engaging with people you like and talking to people who you agree with. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're serious about building peace, you actually have to sit in the same room and talk to the people that you don't agree with and try and and try and work out some kind of resolution to the problems and they argue that you know a lot of the activists because activism has become very split in Fiji since the military coup in 2006 and you know some so there are some who, who agree very strongly with what the, the military has been doing and um, and don't understand the other groups who are saying but you know this is not democratic, this is not representative. So there's a real challenge there, you know, in how you build peace. You're not only dealing with a regime, you're dealing actually with a regime who has sections of support within the NGO activist community. So, you know, the, the idea that the kind of critical activist is pushing the regime into a corner, that's, you know, they're starting, even they are starting to question that and saying, do we need to pursue a different strategy where we don't push the regime into the corner and we don't use these public declarations of, of everything that the regime is doing that's, that's wrong because actually it could be creating a more divided Fiji. The military is a huge um, source of employment. Mm -hmm. Many people you know, have family in the military. If it's not direct family, it's cousins, brothers, you know, women, activists, you know, or women, let's say, um, you know, many women are married to military people, you know, so, and, you know, there is, there is probably dissent within the military. I don't think everyone's, you know, 100% happy within the military. It's kind of, we, we treat these big institutions as if they're huge blocks where there's no actual contestation within them, you know, there most certainly is. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a very difficult situation in a small island society where you have this huge institution, which as you say, is a huge um, employer of people and brings in an enormous amount of foreign currency through its peacekeeping operations, yeah. ironically. <laughs> you know, it, it's an extremely complex situation, far more complex than I think is appreciated in Australia. And often the Australian kind of megaphone diplomacy is really seen, you know, and the, the kind of blanket condemnation is received even by people who are critical of the, of the military is received as unhelpful. You're listening to Peace in Mind on 4EB, 4ZZZ and the Community Radio Network. Peace. So lucky to be here. In a beautiful place. In a time of peace. So lucky to be here. In a beautiful place. In a time of peace. So lucky to be here. We're so lucky to be here. 
in a beautiful place, in a time of peace, of local peace. This peace is local. It's important to know and to remember that it is not peaceful everywhere. In a beautiful place, in a time of peace. We're so lucky to sit here in the expectation that we can sit here, that no bomb will fall if these walls won't cave in on us. Our governments may be at war, but we have no argument with anyone. That's how we feel. That's what we like to believe. It's not necessarily what the people on the other side might see. In a beautiful place, in a time of peace. But it's only random good fortune that leads us to be born into the bosom of the strong. In a time of peace. We're so lucky to be able to worry about romance or cars or whether or not we like our boss. In a time of peace. Lulled by the luxury, we don't realise the extent of the compromise that we're just cogs in a machine making money for a man we'll never meet. In a beautiful place, in a time of peace. It's important to remember that we did nothing to deserve this good luck. It's not because we're better, have better karma, or possess a better God. It's certainly not because we've got better leaders. We're here because, in order to have all our wealth and power, those in power need consumers. In a time of peace, so lucky to be here. In a beautiful place, in a time of peace. We're so lucky to be here wearing clothes of our choice, to reveal skin, to conceal skin, to paint our faces or leave them plain, to grow our hair or cut it short. We're so lucky to be able to go out and work and be independent of our families and of our culture. We may get lonely. We may be exposed to danger. We may get lonely. We may be exposed to danger. We may get lonely, we may be exposed to danger, but we're still safer here than we would be almost anywhere else. In a beautiful place, in a time of peace. We're so lucky to love who we wish, make love with who we wish, build a life with who we wish. We're so lucky to have a child if we want or not, if we choose. We're so lucky that if we fall into the ancient plight, that we here still so far have the right to choose. On Peace in Mind, we're talking about women, war and peacemaking with Dr. Nicole George from the University of Queensland's Department of Political Science. You just heard a song by Penelope Swales called So Lucky. Evidence collected to date has identified a group of men within our ranks who have allegedly produced highly inappropriate material demeaning women and distributed it across the internet and defence's email networks. If this is true, then the actions of these members are in direct contravention to every value the Australian Army stands for. Those who think that it is okay to behave in a way that demeans or exploits their colleagues have no place in this Army. In 2012, the Australian Government finally developed a National Action Plan, which is basically to take the provisions of the plan and think about how we can develop, um, you know, how we can implement those. Uh, the problem with the plan, like it's great to have it, but it's only a starting point, you know, that I think there's a, there's a real problem with understanding the women, peace and security agenda as only pertinent to what Australia does overseas and not understanding that this is actually an agenda that we can localise and it's really pertinent to the situation of our Indigenous communities. Mm our refugee communities and the way we treat refugees, um, uh, the way we manage our, our whole migration issue actually and the status of, of um, say Pacific Islanders in Australia. So it's, you know, it's not only an agenda and that's the way the plan has been formulated at the moment. It's very much about what Australia does overseas in terms of its international engagements in peacekeeping or conflict resolution activities. Um, and I, and I think that's kind of, 
you know, it's great to have the plan and I don't want to be too critical, but I think the next step is for us to think about what does it mean to talk about women, peace and security at home? What does it mean to talk about this issue when we have, you know, incredibly frightening statistics about gender violence in our own communities? Mm. So, you know, I think we've got a like all countries, we've got a long way to go. Nicole is involved in the Women, Peace and Security Academic Collective, which has around 40 members in Australia and New Zealand. It's important because at the moment, it's really important um, because Australia has a seat on the Security Council, which lots of people know about, the uh, UN Security Council, but we also have a seat on the board of UN Women, which is the UN agency devoted to empowering women, um, been running for a long time, it's recently been restructured. We hold those two international responsibilities concurrently from 2013 to 2015. So we feel like this is a really important time to focus attention on the gender, peace and security or women, peace and security agenda um, in Australia and start to think about what we can do to localise that agenda in Australia, but also what we can do in terms of our international responsibilities. Has it been created not only to do this work with the UN, but um, because there's more research needed in this area? More, yes. And to, I think in, to encourage a kind of synergy of energies amongst the people that are working on this, in these areas, in the various universities across the country, and, and also to link with activists. You know, we're, we're trying to develop links. We've got good links with the local branches and the national branch of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. So, you know, to, we, they are very much part of the, the collective and they've been very supportive internationally. And we have on the steering committee, the informal steering committee, we have um, the National Coordinator of WILF. We've had interest from Amnesty as well. They've attended um, one of our meetings. So, you know, it's not only an academic collective, um, but I think it's really to, to, to promote this agenda in terms of policy and in terms of an academic space. And, and, you know, it has been really interesting to see the energy that has come out. You know, we only formed it in November and there is really already a real energy, you know, we're starting to really produce quite a lot of published work. And so I think it's, you know, it's not an agenda that's terribly high profile anywhere. It's often easy to be quite marginalized as a feminist academic in the, in the university system. So this is really nice to have very accomplished women driving it. And it's great to kind of foster um, a sense of pride in what you're doing as, as more junior academics and as our PhD cohort too. We've got a lot of students who are really quite interested in this project as well. One of our coordinators said that what she'd really like to achieve with this collective is to one day be on a plane and a man would turn around to her and say, so what do you do? And she could say, I'm involved in promoting the women, peace and security agenda. And you know, I work on security council resolution 1325 and he, and he'd know about that and he could have, they could have a conversation and he would be knowledgeable about that. So, you know, it's about not only talking to ourselves, you know, I, I think we've all convinced ourselves the next step <laughs> is actually to make this an agenda that is meaningful and, and part of Australian public debate. You're listening to Peace in Mind on 4EB, 4ZZZ and the Community Radio Network.
was music from the Bougainville Voices album. You can go to bougainville.net to find out more. Finally on today's show, we asked Dr. Eleanor Wertheim from the School of Psychology at La Trobe University what she thought the contribution of women means for peace building. Often women have do have a view of the their children and, and, and the family and they can actually have a a relationship view so that they're more in an affiliation sort of way of thinking about the world about how are we in our relationships and what's important about the relationships and maintaining them mm-hmm. and and um but this is this is not black and white obviously this is not yeah. um as clear cut as that in fact women and men are equally likely to forgive so there are no gender differences in how likely people are in forgiving mm-hmm. nonetheless women sometimes will have a particular view about wanting to cooperate and wanting to be uh, not being um, in as much of an aggressive conflict sort of style uh, women sometimes when they do uh, are aggressive and they sometimes do it in different ways that men do um, so men may be more overt in their aggression and women sometimes are more likely to exclude people from groups and do it a little less overtly so um, there's there are there is research in gender differences and i think both men and women have great roles to play and can be very very helpful in conflict situations and in forgiveness contexts and sometimes there's some differences in style and it's important but it is very important one of the things that is happening on the international sphere is that women are often not included in peace processes women are often not included in decision-making processes around the world and it's extremely important to have women involved in the process and partly it's because they women often can contribute uh, a very strong theme of cooperation but also it's just important to have everybody for social justice purposes involved in the processes so that's one of the things that the UN is trying to do is ensure that women are part of all the peace processes you've been listening to peace in mind In the next episode, we investigate how the environment is a vital piece in the peacemaking puzzle. That's it for this edition of Peace in Mind. Thanks for listening. Peace in Mind is produced for the Community Radio Network with the help of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Psychologists for Peace, an interest group of the Australian Psychological Society. Theme and background music by Jandy Rainbow, unisonicascension.com. Series producers Kim Stewart, Linda Rose and Nathan Renault. You can find out more about the topics we cover by going to facebook.com slash peaceinmindproject.